hello, and welcome back to the Miss Independence podcast. My name is Abby, and I'm the host of this podcast, and I am so excited about having you guys here today. Before we get started and I introduce today's episode, I wanted to make a few brief announcements. The first announcement is that this episode, or the season of the Miss Independence podcast is coming to a close, and uh, after today, we have two more episodes, and I am so excited about what those episodes are going to be. And uh, the last episode or the season finale is going to be a Q&A. So if you have any questions you have been dying to ask me, I am just happy to answer them. Uh, just leave them in a DM in my Instagram and make sure that they are not medical advice or legal advice because I am not authorized to give that. But outside of that, I am happy to answer any and all questions you have. And I think that's enough for announcements today. But in today's episode, we are going to be talking about the importance of asking for help. Now, as somebody who can be very stubborn and independent, I am not somebody, asking for help is not my second nature, for sure. It is a skill that I have had to learn and come to accept. And as a human, we all need help. It's not just about having a disability or chronic illness. It's just part of the human experience. So I hope that today's episode can provide some background information about the importance of asking for help and the benefits of asking for help, as well as talk about what I do to enhance that skill, because it really is a skill or a muscle that we have to continuously work on. And so I hope that today's episode can give you some insight on how to improve that part of your life. So thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy this episode. So along with providing my own tips, I also wanted to make sure I was doing some fact-based information and research, or sharing fact-based information and research. So I have been doing some research about the topic of asking for help, specifically when you have a chronic illness or disability. And I was one of the databases I was using is the National Library of Medicine, also known as the NIH. And so I was doing some research on there and found some articles that I wanted to share with you. The first article I wanted to share with you was published in 2018, and it is titled The Family Members Experience Supporting Adults with Chronic Illness, and it was a national survey uh, because this is information that is available on the internet, and I'm going to link the uh, information in the episode description. I'm just going to read off the study so you guys can get a direct... that you guys can get the direct information about what the study is. So the background of this study is that family and friends are often helping chronically ill adults manage their conditions. Uh, Information about specific ways to support help. Supporters help with disease management and their experiences with and concerns about help helping are lacking. So basically the resources among individuals who support family members or friends with chronic illness is lacking about how to support. And if you can, if you remember in a previous episode, we have talked about this different types of support. So I think that this is going to be such a great opportunity to really dive in about taking all those types of supports and really seeing it in a active, practical way. Anyway, going along with the study, the objective of this study was to describe key roles and concerns of family members who support the health management of adults with chronic illness and compare experiences of health supporters living in and outside of the recipient's home. So again, it's kind of putting it into two categories. One category is that the caregiver or the person providing the support 
is living with the individual and one group is where the individual lives who's receiving the support lives independently. So that is the objective. The method of the study, the data was obtained from the National Internet Survey of 1,722 adults selected to represent the United States population. So this is just the United States. A detailed survey, detailed survey questions were completed by 703 respondents who reported providing regular disease management help to at least one functionally independent family member or friend with at least one of the five chronic conditions. So the five chronic conditions within this study were diabetes, heart failure, chronic lung disease, arthritis, and depression. The results of the study show that uh, current supporters assisted 834 chronically ill adults, 257 receiving in-home care support, and 577 receiving out-of-home support. Current supporters spent 2.1 hours a week on average helping their support recipient with health care, and 21.2% attended their recipient's healthcare appointments. Many recipients discussed crucial concerns about medication side effects, 47%, and trouble paying for medications was about a third or 32% with supporters. However, 41% of the supporters reported insufficient information about recipients' health conditions and re the regimen to be helpful. In other words, they didn't have the resources or the knowledge to be able to help or support their family or friend with a chronic illness or disability because of the lack of knowledge of how to do that. In-home supporters reported arguing more often with the support recipients, but also received more information from recipients, healthcare providers than out-of-home supporters. And just on a personal note, I think that that definitely makes sense because when you're living with somebody and they depend on you for care, you're more likely to have that opportunity of discussing those situations, especially if you transport the person to and from appointments, you are more likely to be able to easily, easier, have, the, have easier access to gaining that information. And so the conclusion of the study is the family and friends have significant potential influences on patients' chronic illness and self-management. Programs to engage chronically ill patients' families to support self-management could provide information and skills targeting needs identifying by supporters. So again, it really just talks about the importance of sharing that information and as the person who's supporting an, an, another individual with chronic illness or disability, it's important for them to have the knowledge as well and to be able to support the individual with the chronic illness in self-management. So I think that that's really important. I'm gonna make sure that um, there, I wanna, you know, kind of see what else is talking about. Um, one of the things I found interesting about this study is it talks about uh, caregivers in kind of two different capacities. Again, it talked about caregivers living in and outside the home, but it also talked about caregivers and how involved they were within the care they received. So sometimes you'll have an individual with a disability who has great self-management care or potential to be able to do that with the guidance. And other times you'll have individuals with a disability or chronic illness who are going to need extensive support and the caregiver actually administering the drugs or, you know, changing their diaper 
those kind of hands-on more intensive tests. So I think that that's really important too when asking for help. Obviously, uh, individuals who, you know, are not, you know, are not, are unable to ask for help or advocate for themselves need a little bit more extensive care and support than individuals who have a little bit more independence. So I think that that was another interesting piece of the article that I found in, uh, useful is that the when you're asking for help, you know, it really does come back to the cognitive um, abilities of the individual with a disability or chronic illness. So I think that that definitely is pointed out in the study. And I think that that's really important because it talks about the level of support which is needed. And again, that that goes for both direct support professionals and caregivers who are kind of indirectly supported. In our second article titled The Perspectives of Patients with Chronic Disease and Caregivers of Self-Management Interventions, A Scoping Review of Reviews, we're going to be talking about the importance of self-management and how that does relate to asking for help. So you're probably like, well, self-management and asking for help are kind of a, um, two conflicting things, right? And that's not the case. I think that when you're able to ask for help, you're better able to manage for yourself and your chronic condition. So I think asking for help is a form of autonomy and independence and self-management. So I'm gonna start by reading the background of this study. And again, this will be linked in the episode description because I want you guys to have access to it. So if you have any further questions, please revert back to that article. Self-management, so this is the extract. So the background is self-management interventions are supportive interventions systematically provided by healthcare professionals, peers, and laypersons to increase the skills and confidence of the patients in their ability to manage chronic diseases. The study had two objectives. The first objective was to summarize the preferences and experiences of patients and the caregivers, informal caregivers and healthcare professionals with SM from chronic diseases, and the second objective was to identify and describe the relevant outcomes for SM interventions from this perspective. One of the things I just wanted to touch on was it talked about um, two different types of caregivers. They talked about the healthcare professionals and the layperson. So a layperson could be a parent or a spouse who receives, or sorry, who provides the care to an individual with a chronic illness or disability. So I just wanted to clear that up before we went into the methods. The methods, uh, the study conducted a mixed method scoping review of reviews. They researched three databases until December of 2020 for quantitative, qualitative or mixed methods reviews exploring patients and caregivers preferences or experiences with SM and type two diabetes, uh, obesity, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, and heart failure. Quantitative data was narratively synthesized and qualitative data followed a three-step descriptive thematic synthesis. Identified themes were categorized into outcomes of modified factors of SM interventions. So basically what this is saying is this uh, study conducted had both, both used qualitative and quantitative data. So qualitative data is a little bit uh, more broad and it, you know, for an example, it could be, what is your favorite season? So you have the four seasons and 
people have the uh, ability to answer fall, spring, summer, or winter. So it's more open-ended and gives the respondent a little bit more choice in the matter, where quantitative data is based on numbers. So you could hand out a survey that says how many, if you're doing a research project on migraines and the effect of that um, has on chronic illness or disability, you could ask um, how many migraines do you get in 90 days? And that would be quantitative or, you know, numerical. So those are the difference between qualitative and quantitative. I just wanted to make sure that that was explained. Um, like I said, qualitative data um, is a little bit more open-ended. And in this study, it followed a three-step descriptive um, summary. And um, they were able to identify themes or outcomes um, of the SM interventions. And again, this uh, study really kind of focused in on uh, COPD, heart failure, type 2 diabetes. Uh, so those were the kind of the conditions that they were looking at uh, when doing, conducting this research. So the results indicated out of 148 um, type 2, wait, we, there was 100, 148 reviews um, or 53 participants of type 2 diabetes. For obesity, there were 20 participants. Um, for heart failure, there was 38 participants. And for those of, with more than one disease, there were uh, five participants. They identified, they identified 12 main themes within the study. Eight described the process of SM, disease progression, SM behaviors, social support, interaction with healthcare professionals, access to healthcare costs for patients, culturally identified goals and perceptions. And lastly, health knowledge. And four described the experience with SM interventions. The perceived benefit of this intervention, individualized care, sense of community with their peers, and usability of equipment. Most themes and sub-themes were categorized of outcomes of SM interventions. So in conclusion, the process of SM, or self-management, shaped the perspectives of patients and their caregivers on SM interventions. The perspectives were influenced by perceived benefits of the intervention, the sense of community with their peers, the intervention's usability, and the level of individualized care. Our finding, the findings of the study can inform the selection of patient important outcomes, decision-making processes, including the information or the formulation of recommendation and the design and implementation of SM interventions. So basically what they're saying is that they identify 12 main themes that cover the aspects of self-management. You know, there's disease, disease trajectory, the influence of this, uh, you know, SM interventions, and, you know, with the use of the four types of diseases that they were able to use, they found that um, caregivers described a relevant regarding self-management should be considered when selecting a patient important outcomes in this context. So the importance of the study is that they were hoping that the themes of the study, like we had just outlined, can help guide the implementation of self-management interventions, which can be a source of help. And, you know, along with source of help, uh, it's important to have informed decision-making, which is what they talk about here, and to be able to, from there, create recommendations that are gonna be suitable to the individual's care.
So yeah, so that is um, kind of the background of the study. I'm gonna see if I can go into a little bit more detail um, in a part two, but that was just kind of the background and I'll just kind of give my thoughts. So think. So since we have looked at the research, I kind of just wanted to end this episode talking about my own experience about uh, my journey of learning to ask for help. Like I said, I'm a very stubborn and independent person, but it also comes down to the meaning that I would give to asking for help. And I think that that's true kind of for everyone, especially individuals who have a chronic illness or disability. We have to look at the message of what does it mean when I ask for help? What story am I telling myself about the negative side of asking for help? So for me, when I was refusing to ask for help back when I didn't realize how important of a skill it was, I would say that, you know, some of the common messaging that I would have is that I am a burden, I am not worthy, I am helpless, because again, I really like to appear that I'm very independent. So by asking for help, it made me weak, uh, quote unquote, but that is just definitely not true. So I think that that's kind of the first thing that I would invite you to do is what messaging are you giving behind asking for help? The second thing I would do is talking about, um, you know, kind of just going back to this research about the importance of asking for help and the benefits. Um, think about one or two reasons of why asking for help is going to be beneficial to you in your specific situation. What is it going to allow you to do? What kind of relationships is it going to allow you to have? And how is it going to enhance your life? I think that those are very important questions to ask because it's really going to show how asking for help can be a benefit to your life. So I think that that's the second thing. The third thing I would say is that I think that for me personally, um, looking at it as an opportunity uh, when asking for help, and it's also not just an opportunity for you, but it's an opportunity for the person giving the help or the support, right? Because they are offering you a gift. So I think that that's really important too, that when we're asking for help, we're really just giving another person an opportunity to be able to assist us and build a stronger connection, which is definitely talked about in the research studies, but also um, in my own life, I have seen that that's true because it kind of, when you don't ask for help, you kind of box yourself in. If you can think of, you know, close your eyes and think of a, a situation and that you like kind of refused us for help, and you're kind of just stuck, and you know, but anyway, close your eyes, and you know, picture yourself in this box alone. Now, how does that feel? You know, so answer that question, and then imagine yourself breaking down that wall, and somebody else is on the other side. Now, what does that kind of represent to you? So, I think that those are very important benefits to asking for help, and just a few tips to remind you. Uh, yourself that asking for help is a very positive thing and can have a lot of long-lasting effects that we have talked about in this episode. And last but not least, I just think it's uh, very important to restate that everyone needs help. That's kind of what I want to leave you with today, that everyone needs help. It doesn't mean that you're weak or stupid or whatever kind of label you're going to put on that. It certainly does not mean that. And you know, if it were true, then everyone would, everyone needs help. So therefore, everyone would be stupid. And I 
bet you can disagree with that statement, right? So that's all we have for today's episode. Thank you guys for listening. And I'm so excited about the last two episodes of the season. And um, thank you so much for today's episode. Have a great week.